0: Take out your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter. It's on page 972 in your pew Bible, Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13. If you're visiting, we're beginning a series on tough issues. Sometimes there aren't simple answers to the Christian faith, and Christians are free to disagree. Tough issues. Well, we come this morning to the area of the Bible, where all the tough issues come from. Together as God's people, we, let's read verses 12 to 13 of the fourth chapter aloud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's Word. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before Him, no creature is hidden but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. This is the reading of God's holy word. To him be the glory and the honor. Last week was a great experience for uh, those of us that went down to St. Sophia, the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, and uh, sharing together. And uh, Father John, the dean of the cathedral, was just blown away that we would take buses down there and worship. He came back Sunday night. And our uh, mission, as you know, is to help make Los Angeles the greatest city for Christ in America. And it's going to take the whole church to do that, to reach the whole city. We also believe in transforming this culture. We need marketplace leaders meeting with the spiritual leaders, meeting with political leaders. Last week, Carol and I were all week back in Washington, D.C. for the uh, national prayer breakfast where the Senate and the Congress gather together and the President addresses and a time of meeting together and Christian men and women uh, from both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, trying to come together and to make this nation better. You know, and i got to tell you one thing about D.C. I thought L.A. was into dropping names. You know, uh, <laughs> they make us look like amateur in name-dropping out there. And it's always such a bizarre place to minister. One of the more famous uh, stories is of... I don't know where it was from, but a priest that was out there on his 25th anniversary they were giving an award to. He'd been a parish priest there, and they were waiting at the banquet, and a politician was going to introduce him, and the politician got hung up in traffic and doing some deals, and so they asked the priest if he'd give a few words in the meantime before his award, and he said when he first came to D.C., he uh, thought he was a little suspicious, and he, he thought, my goodness, everybody has problems, but the decadence that was there. And he said he would never break the confidentiality of the confessional, but his he remembers his first confession was somebody had not only been having an affair, but somebody that was stealing money and spreading lies. And But after 25 years, he realized it was a pretty good place. Well, the politician finally made his way there, and he got up front, and he said, I'm sorry for being late. He said, uh, uh, Father's meant a lot to me, a uh, very special relationship over the years. In fact, I had the honor of being the first one to go to the confessional uh, with a vet priest there. Moral of the story, always be on time, particularly uh, to this hour. One of the things that Bel Airs uh, being known for, not just for a ministry that does so much in missions and helping, but growingly a church that's not afraid to t- take on the tough issues. Now, for the next four weeks, we're going to be taking on areas that godly and intelligent men and women of the faith are free to disagree on. The Bible is our final court of appeals, and we're free to disagree as long as this is what we back it up with. And we'll all have different opinions. You'll have your opinions, and I'll have the right ones. And I only do this every 18 months because it takes me that long to answer all the hate mail that comes in. But next week we're going to be looking at sexuality, and what does the Bible say about that. Then we're going to be taking a look at smoking, drinking, and R-rated film, and all everyday pleasures. What does God say about that? Then we'll be taking a look at ghosts, and demons, and spiritism, and then we're going to start a series on prayer, because we're going to need a series on prayer after we uh, do this. But I want you to come in the mornings and be prepared with your heart. This morning we take a look at the source of all controversy for Christians, this book the Bible. And as we get ready to come to this communion table, and this is not a table of any denomination, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us that went down to St. Sophia's, uh, Father John went out of his way to be gracious, but saying, I'm sorry, it's a closed communion, so that they might protect only those that understand what's going on to come. We believe as Presbyterians that this is open to anybody who calls upon Christ as Lord and as Savior to come and participate. This book... Throughout the ages, the scholars and saints and followers of Christ have had two convictions. One, this is the inspired written word of God. But we do not worship a book. We worship the living word, the risen Jesus Christ. Yet, everything we know about the risen Christ comes from this book. In Bel-Air, the bottom line is this. The more you and I know this, and we study it, and we love it, and we meditate upon it, the more we open ourselves up to let the risen Christ be able to empower us and use us. The more you know this, and I'm not exaggerating on this, the more powerful your life can become. It takes an intelligent faith. I get so sick of all the juvenile arguments about this not being inspired of God that is out there. And yet... A child is the one who picks up faith first. And we're going to take a look at that. We are not a bunch of happy deists in here that there might be a God out there making holy guesses about what life is all about. We've got a written word that is trustworthy and sure, and I have staked my soul and my eternity on it. And if you're smart, you have too. Amen? Let's turn with us over to 2 Timothy. Let's take a look at this. In the third chapter, page 967 in your Pew Bible, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 16. This is a man's death letter. Saul of Tarsus, the great rabbi, the Apostle Paul, we call him, is on death row. He knows he is going to be executed. He has no doubt about it this time. He will not be set free. And he writes to his beloved Timothy. And he writes to him, if you were going to give a last letter to somebody, last time you'd ever see them, you knew you were going to die, what would you tell them? Here's what he says. Verse 15. I'll look up and, uh, let's start reading 15 and 16 together. It's in the middle of that paragraph. And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Well, the first question we have to ask, what kind of a book is this? How am I supposed to read it? You read... The poems of Robert Frost, different than you read the L.A. Times. Same language, different style. Well, first of all, this is a book that's a historical book. We do not believe that the Bible fell down out of heaven. Though God is the author, he used individual 40 different people, maybe, over 1,500 years from real places in real times. The Quran this morning, all of the Muslims around the world, the one billion that call upon Allah, the Quran is not hooked to history. The Bhagavad Gita, the 800 million Hindus that use that for their holy book, it is not hooked into history. The Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, or all the New Age or the Scientology or whatever religion out there, it's not hooked to history. This book is unique. It came from a real historical time from real people. Well, So what? What that means is the more you and I know about the time that it was written in, the closer we can get to what the Lord was trying to say. As we've said, the more you know what God said, the more you can say what God is saying. And sometimes there's just things that seem really strange out there. It's like a bizarre world. I just talked to somebody who three times, they've tried to read through the Bible and they're doing fine and they slam into the book of Leviticus. And they just go, what is that all about? Well, it's a spiritual coloring book to God bringing people in the bronze period, 3,500 years ago, what he's about. You who have Jewish friends, or if you're Jewish, if you grew up kosher, you did not ever have a cheeseburger. No milk with meat, if you have kosher friends. another thing: things, don't send them crab dip, okay? They're, they don't, can't do shellfish either. Why is that? Why not milk and meat? Because in Leviticus it says, thou shalt not boil a calf in its mother's milk. Why does God care about that? Does he hate cheeseburgers? It was a Canaanite worship ritual. It was a fertility ritual, and God was telling them, when you go into Canaan, you don't imitate the things they do. Well, today the rabbis would say, well, we believe all of eating is under God's laws, uh, and you know, that's the way it is. One rabbi explained it to me brilliantly, milk doesn't go with meat, and that is that. Okay, uh, <laughs> well, there was a time, of that. there was also another custom back then that we say applied to them. When you made an oath, you stuck your hand during the patriarchs under the other person's thigh. Aren't you glad that custom has gone away? <laughs> or, those, if you were married and that your husband died and you didn't have any children, you'd have to marry his brother. And if he died, you'd have to marry his brother so you could have children. Aren't you glad that custom went away? And yet God commands it. Well, he commands it because at a certain time in a certain place, it made absolute sense. There was no social security then. There was no safety net. And so the family took you in. It's a historical book. That's the dangerous thing about it. Because if it's not right historically, then how do we trust the rest of it? And I love the danger of it because the closest ally you have in trusting this word is the archaeologist's shovel. I remember in uh, when I was going to college, 1975, when the earth's crust was cooling, that I remember studying in an ancient Near East class that the Hittite empire was pretty much uh, rumors, that, you know, we thought there were Hittite out there, we didn't know for sure, and then all of a sudden, there is this uh, breakthrough in this discovery, and they discover not only that the Hittites this were real, but they broke into the royal Library of the Hittite kings, and there are thousands and thousands of documents they have, and the academic world went never mind. <laughs> the point being that this is a historical book, but it 's also a book of language it 's not colors, it 's not pictures. In fact, it 's the first book. it was really hard for me. Remember your early Bibles when you went to the Great Then they had the best paintings. Uh, Jesus always looked like an Aryan Nazi, but you know uh, that. You know there are pictures of it. This has language, and language carries meaning. The more you know Hebrew or Aramaic, which uh, the film that's coming out, which we're going to encourage everybody to go see, Mel Gibson's Passion, uh, I encourage you not to take your children to it. I mean that. Uh, and then, uh, but. It is in Aramaic, which is really kind of flattened Hebrew. It's Hebrew, but it's the common Hebrew. Or the New Testament is written in Greek. The more you know those languages, the more you can understand what's saying. I might put a caveat right away. Time out. Every pastor who tells you if you really knew the original language, you would agree with my interpretation. If that was true, there's only, there would only be one version. But there are many versions because we're always learning new things in etymology about words. And language changes. One of the old King James, early King James versions, which was the hip language of that day in 1611, God says in Hosea, Ephraim, Ephraim, when I think of you, my bowels are moved. If you sent a Valentine's card that says, when I think of you, my bowels move, well, what what does that mean? Well, bowels was the old English word for heart, for inside here, and then God says I get butterflies when I think of you in that sense. Well, language changes. So all right, no more analogies. Let's just keep moving on here. (laughs) So it's a book of history, it's a book of language, and it's written for adults, but it's also a book written when there weren't a lot of books. The word biblios, biblia comes, which we use for book, really means scroll, sefer, the Hebrew word. I remember meeting with uh, my kind of a Jewish uh, spiritual mentor, Eliezer uh, Erbach. He would always say, "Babakasha, efos sefer. He'd say, please, where's the book? And I was always in trouble because they wanted to speak in Hebrew. Well, it's really a scroll. Do you know how many people were illiterate? No one sat down and said, I think I'll write a book. Because people would go, what is that? The invention of the codex probably advanced this page knowledge more than even the invention of the computer. Because now you wouldn't have to have different scrolls. You could bind them together. But writing was still around. And that's why you hear in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. Not thus writeth the Lord. And that's why, hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. Not read, O Israel. And yet there was no need because people didn't trust writing then. When you wrote, anybody can lie when you write. But when you talk to somebody eye to eye, that was corroborated. And the oral tradition was not only remarkably accurate, stunningly accurate. And there are many oral traditions today in some of the cultures around the world. And they are stunningly detailed in the letter in that. But at some point, they needed to start writing it down, and so they started to write that down. But they wrote it down with people that were witnesses of it. <laughs> Someone, I think it was a joke at one of the churches where I was at, sent out an email that for a, a Christmas present for the pastor that I really was into romantic comedies, and so they wanted to buy me a bunch of romantic VCRs. And one of them said to my children, one of my children. We're going to get your dad. I hear he's really into romances. And they go, yeah. <laughs> and they said, no. We, we've heard everybody knows. We've been talking about it from email. He's really into romance. And the kids go, I know him. And they said, no. Well, we think. We, you know, we trust. And they're going in their great theological insight. Their response was just, whatever. <laughs> they knew me. And by the way, I try. I try. <laughs> but I don't like romance movies. Uh <laughs> Chick flicks have a purpose, but you know. uh. <laughs> well, how did they know that? They knew me. You're free to say, you know, if I were Jesus, I would have said this. Or if I were God, this would be my opinion and my values. That would be fine, except you never met the resurrected Lord. The people that wrote this down and gave their life to him walked with him. They lived with him. They ate with him. They saw him. Crucified, resurrected. The Holy Spirit came down and they wrote down and they said as it exploded around the Mediterranean world, this is what he said. And they were around to corroborate a lot of false gospels. And we're gonna be talking about this Da Vinci Code. I mean, may I just say I'm I shouldn't be stunned, but I'm stunned that people go, you know, there are all these other gospels and they're every bit as good. They're not as good. The early church fathers said they're totally whacked and there's no apostolic witness to them. There are seven different Gospels out there. The Gospel of Peter and Judas and Thomas and all. And the early people said, there's no way. One of them, Jesus turns a little boy into a little clay pigeon and then breaks him. I wonder why that doesn't ring true, you know? If you were going to make up a God-man, it would. Wouldn't it if you were just going to make up a God-child? god child That's the stunning things about these. But this book is so trustworthy because they walked with him. But you and I need to wrestle with this in some ways to study it. You need to be able to, you know, this little thing I have in the back there of your bulletin, S G-S I, what is the setting of it? What is the genre? Is it a poem? Is it narration of history? Is it a letter of love? When the Bible says in the Psalms, the mountains clap their hands, you don't say that proves that the Bible is not true. It's an expression. When the apostles said, if Christ is not alive, Paul said, you and I are to be pitied. That's not an expression. He's saying it either happened physically or we're the biggest jerks, the fools, us of all time. He's saying, I stake my very soul on this. And so we have to read it intelligently. You see, the trouble is we're more children of Athens than Jerusalem. The culture you and I live in is a Greek culture. They're very logical. A plus B equals C, B plus C equals D, A equals D. We love that stuff. Hebrew is in the truth, but they don't obsess about the vehicle. They obsess about the cargo. That's why Jews and the Hebrew theologians could tolerate mystery a lot more. When your Jewish friends say, on the one hand, on the other hand. They're not just dodging it. They can tolerate that. And so very often we come to the Scripture, we come at it with a wrong understanding. But I want you to know this. This is a stunning book. There is nothing like it in the world. The more you know this, the more you memorize it, and that's a tough process, the more when you're stuck in places or on the 405 or in line that God can use it. Because now you need an intelligent faith. But you need a childlike faith, not childish. Childish is where you say, oh, God, lead. You know, the guy that said, oh, Lord, lead. And he turned it and he put his finger there and it said, and Judas went and hung himself. He thought, I'll try again. And then he turned and it said, what thou must do, do quickly. And he just closed it up, you know. God doesn't lead that way. The first thing, though, as we come together is that we trust it. The Holy Spirit, as you came in here this morning, you were just like me. You get out of this book which you bring to it. And we've all got our little preconceived categories and areas. And the first thing that it takes the grace of the risen Lord to do is to remove our pride. You read that the word is alive and active. Does that mean the words are always shifting? No. It means that because Christ is alive, there's one true interpretation of a passage. You get the setting and the genre and the structure and there's one interpretation with the words, but there's many applications. Roger will say, and Brenda will likewise, you can be up front and just preaching on blue the whole sermon. You talk about blue, you talk about the shades of blue, you have illustrations on blue, and on the way out somebody will say, thank you, I always had a question on yellow. And you'll think, what were they listening to? And the answer was the Holy Spirit. Because very often you find out you're talking about some area, but the Holy Spirit's saying, we need to deal with this area. And he'll use them. Haven't you read a passage a hundred times? And then all of a sudden it'll leap out in, in something like a job or who to date or in what situation of marrying. Or And there's no scripture in here that talks about investing, what to invest in. We'll see you next week. There's no reference to oral sex. Does that mean God doesn't care? There's no reference to unplugging a loved one from life support, mercy dying. Does that mean we can't get anything out of here on there? The answer is no. Like a toolkit, God's truths, and Jesus was the perfect mechanic, if you will, bad analogy, but he could reach into the toolbox of God's Word, of the Torah of the Scriptures, and perfectly apply them every time they tried to get him in a the corner. They could never catch him. They could never corner him. It's like he was God. Like he knew the book really, really well, you know. And likewise, when we get to know this and to love it and to walk with it, and the more you memorize this, and I mean this, and the more you can put it, and it takes serious work, then the more that the Holy Spirit can activate. Some of us have given the Lord such a little hard drive to use. We got five or six favorite pet verses, and that's it. And He's supposed to guide our life in this complex world in that time. And yet, the more that we learn this and commit it to our heart and study it, the more God can say, see, do this, do that, move in this direction. And He can use that. And it's all about finally trusting the Lord. As we're singing, it's all about Jesus. I'm sure you know the great theologian Karl Barth in the last century wrote church dogmatics. It's this great one of those human cortexes walking around, you know, and... And they asked him to summarize his theology, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's why kids sometimes get it ahead of time. Sometimes they're off. Sunday school teacher, <laughs> don't you teaching? It's so fun to teach Sunday school because they memorize stuff. They just don't get the Legos exactly right. Some one teacher said, what's an epistle? And a little boy said, I know it's the wife of an apostle. <laughs> True. Another teacher told me she asked about Lot's wife, and the kid went, I know, she was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire at night. <laughs> Might be inside, who knows with that. But when you ask them, do this, oh, Jesus will take care of me. Oh, God will take care of me. And then Jesus pulled out the standard of Torah, Talmud, Talmudim it means student, He didn't bring a great rabbi. He didn't bring one of his disciples. He took a little child. And he says, you trust me like this. I will change your life. You give me a group like this. And I will change this city. You give me a handful of men that know me. I will change the world. I was reading a moving account. Some years ago before the fall of the... Iron Curtain. And you know, we can so abuse Scripture and misuse it. Someone gave me a Bible bar. What this is, is this has the seven foods of Deuteronomy eight eight in it. And it has wheat, barley, raisins, honey, figs, pomegranates, and olive oil. And it claims if you eat this, it will regulate your appetite. It's true. I I ate one and it makes you so sick. You will never eat again, I tell you. that. You can have this later. But, you know, that's why God didn't give us this to have Bible bars. He gave us His Word so that we can go and we can live life. And even in the most fierce anger and the hostility that people have against the Bible. You don't need to defend the Bible. You don't need to defend God. This Christ is alive. He'll use this. Alexander Restavez was doing a mockery on the gospel in a play called the Sermon on the Mount called Jesus in Tuxedo. And it was a mockery of Christians and making fun of the Orthodox Church, which was in... The Ukraine and Russia and the Soviet Union days. And in Moscow, he's in the theater and the part came for him. And he was supposed to cry out. He opened up the Bible and he's supposed to cry out. Jesus says, the Sermon on the Mount, Give me my tuxedo and hat. And instead, he looked down and he read, just kind of for grins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everybody got a little nervous. And then he read, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the other actors are starting to <clears throat> clear their, you know, when someone's going off a script, and uh, they're starting to stamp their foot a little bit, like, uh, they get back to it, get back to it. And he read several more. And they started to close the curtain to stop the play. And he remembered something he'd learned as a little boy. And he said, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. Before the curtain closed. This hardcore atheist communist. Sent out on mocking the word. Had become a believer. From the power of the spirit using the word. This I have never followed a word of it. That I have not found to be true. And I have never disobeyed a word of it. That I didn't find the consequences is true. And that's why I can say to all of you standing up here with the authority of God. And I don't say those words lightly. Come to me all you who are hungry and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. That's why I can say to you I don't care what you've done. And how many times you've done it. That the blood of Christ covers all of our sin. That's why I can tell you that he said, I will never leave you, never. And I will never forsake you. And that's why we can come to this table. This is not a table, as I said, of any denomination, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. We in the Reformed tradition believe that it's by God's grace. Do you know why we believe? It's not because we're so smart or holy, but God's grace was given to us in this mystery of coming together, you can memorize this Bible and still miss the point. Because the point is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we come, and as you will slowly have this bread, and as you crush it in your teeth, and you realize that you'll never be crushed for any of your sins if you're in Christ, because He took the hit for us on the cross. And as you drink in this cup, and literally as that fluid becomes a part of your body, that in a spiritual act of saying, Christ, come in me. Let's pray and set this aside, shall we? God, I thank you for the living word, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for your written word that we can trust in the scriptures. And I thank you for this now enactment of, Lord, your sealing of us by the covenant. So, Lord, we pray that you would come now and Those, Lord, that need to trust you, would you step out and put your arms around them? Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us your peace. In your name we pray, amen.